Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Work Hard, Retire Early podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joseph Hadaway, and today we are sitting down with James Bowman. James is a U.S. Army veteran who is passionate about helping others reach financial independence. Uh, he also offers financial co- coaching and is the host of the Gen Z Money podcast. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing amazing, man. How about yourself? Doing pretty good, too. Glad to hear yeah, I'm super excited to be here, man. Hey, super excited to have you here. So, you know, I gave you a brief bio there. What else can you tell us about yourself and your work? No, that's about it, man. I spent five years in the Army, and at some point I was able to find out about financial literacy, and now it's my passion, man. Now I love talking to people and coaching people and helping them find their own financial literacy. Hey, that is what we're all all here for, and I love to hear it. So, you know, going to your early life, young, young James, you know, how was money viewed in your house growing up? Did your parents talk to you much about the household finances? I'll say, man, my family, we grew up, uh, so my parents were divorced at a young age. And so I grew up in, in, you know, kind of a, the rougher side of the neighborhood. And so we were on government assistance, uh, food stamps and things of that sort. So we, never, we never talked about money. It was always, you know, we don't have it right. Like once essentially once the food stamps card is out of money, I mean, that's it for groceries. So we had to be very sparing with it. So I always had like a scarcity mindset in our household where, you know, money, it wasn't an unlimited commodity. I I love your point about the uh, scarcity mindset there. And you know, moving on into that, was there a point, you know, do you still have the scarcity mindset or is there a point where it left? Was that a net worth point or an income point? So I'm going to be completely honest with you, Joseph. I still somewhat have a scarcity mindset to this day. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if everyone does. I just I'm very humble. And I realize, although I have done my best when it comes to saving, when it comes to investing, and it comes to uh, creating more sources of income, I have this realization that any day it can be taken away from me. And so I'm not sure if that's a scarcity thing or it's just I appreciate the things I have and I'm uh, conscious of what I spend money on and, and make, because I realize that it can be, it can go bye-bye any minute. I love that point. You say, you know, about the appreciation and the consciousness of it. Cause I mean, you're a hundred percent right. What we have today could very easily be gone tomorrow. One wrong misstep or, you know, things come up, things happen. Who knows? Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't suggest everyone live their life that way because I guess it, it can be somewhat, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's just, I understand it's not right. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't live your life out of fear, but I just think realizing uh, being prepared for the worst and hoping for the best is my take when it comes to finances. You know what I mean? And I think for a lot of people, it's a fair take. They can definitely, you know, relate with the whole point of an emergency fund, prepare for the worst. We, in the personal finance world, we know that stuff happens. You got to be ready for it or else, I mean, what is that Warren Buffett? Uh, you only know who's skinny dipping when the tide goes out. You know who's not prepared when the bad stuff happens. I love that. I love it. And, you know, moving into more so 
what was there a point where you suddenly you know felt the need to get control of your money or was it more of a gradual thing that just kind of happened I tell you, man, I to give a little context to the story. So I went into the military age 17 and I never had really made any money up to that point. Um, it was you know, I did I, I worked, but it was like side work um, helping my friend's dad with construction and things like that. So I'd have sixty dollars here, one hundred dollars here, two hundred dollars here. But it was never any real money. I didn't even have a bank account. So I went into the military. I went through all the training and then I, I started getting you know, real money. And from an early age, I was super duper. I'm going to, I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm, I want to be as humble as possible when I say this, but I was smart when it came to things like credit cards and, and not taking out loans and stuff like that. So I was, I was super duper blessed to always pay my card off, but I was doing stupid things, man. I was buying clothes, even though I wear a uniform five days a week in the military. And so I was going out and buying just all these nice clothes and shoes and trying to fill my life with things I never really had as a child. But I remember, man, I I remember when I finally, you know, as they say, got punched in the face. I ended up, it was in 2017, the beginning of 2017, I got my first tax return. And me and my buddy, we had just got to our first duty station. So we were living in the barracks, which is the government housing they provide. Didn't have a car. So we were Ubering everywhere. And we were just like, look, I got my tax return. Let's go buy a car. So we go to the dealership. Uh, Anybody in the military knows like you shouldn't really buy a car around a military installation because it's easy pickings. You know what I mean? And I ended up going in. They talked me into buying this car. And in my mind, I said, "Okay, my tax return is three thousand. I'm going to put two thousand down. I'm going to save a thousand. And I didn't know Dave Ramsey at this point. I didn't know anything like that. But something ended up happening where I was required to put all three thousand down. So I had $3,000 in my um, checking account. I put that down on a car. I'm about to leave. Hey, um, we need you, your insurance people to send over the insurance. I'm like, what is insurance? So I end up, I call USAA. They're like, yeah, we can get you insured. No problem, blah, blah, blah. And they told me, okay, well, your deductible is going to be $1,000. I'm like, what is that? And so I'm, I'm learning on the fly. I'm at this dealership, you know, I'm learning on the fly, all these things. So I'm like, I, I remember asking Asia on phone, like, so if I go out and I crash this car, what happens if I don't have a thousand dollars? And I don't even remember the response she gave, but that's what was going through my head. And then it, they were like, okay, you need $400 in order to activate the insurance and drive off the lot. So I put it on a credit card. I had absolutely no money to my name. And I remember driving home in the rain. I felt like I got beat up at the car dealership because I made a stupid purchase. I put down more money than I needed. And I knew like if I make one wrong turn and I crash this car and I have a thousand dollar deductible, I'm going to be bankrupt, man. (laughs) And that I remember that drive back. That was the point I realized I'm doing something wrong, man. And it was from that point that I knew that a change needed to be made. I just didn't know what it was. And that's, you know, definitely a great realization. I'm just going to say a great time to have it even too, you know, before you got too far into debt or too far, you know, credit cards or anything that's 
a little more predatory than, say, even a car loan. I know you said around military installations, they're easy picking, a little more predatory, but I guess you know, it could have been worse. Yeah, could have been way worse. So, you know, when you, on that drive home, you decided it's time to get serious, learn more about personal finance. Um, you know, when you got serious about your financial situation, building wealth, you know, what steps or what process did you take? Uh, that's a great question, Joseph. So I kind of, uh, being in a situation I was in, I had a goal, right? The goal was I need to save $1,000 as fast as I can, just in case I crash the car, at least I can cover my deductible. So, I mean, I was, I was only driving to and from work. I ate at our cafeteria every single day, three meals. I spent no discretionary spending and I saved up a thousand dollars as quickly as I possibly could. And I want to say at the time it took about a month and a half because uh, when you're low enlisted in the military, you know, I was in, I only got paid like 600 to $700 per paycheck. And that was once a month. And uh, I'm sorry, $700 twice a month. And so one paycheck would just go for my car payment and my insurance. And then the other would be discretionary, whether it's phone, Wi-Fi or saving. So that was the goal. And I got there. I got there relatively quick. I'd say between one to two months. And then once I got there, I was like, okay, I'm going to save a little bit more. And so I just kept saving and I kept saving. And of course, you know, I would, I would go out to eat and I would still hang out with friends, but I was still like diligently saving, um, you know, uh, scheduled saving. Like every single time I got paid, I instantly saved. And that continued for, I want to say a year. And then what happened next is once I got to about five to $6,000 saved over the first year, I then transitioned to, okay, like this car payment has got to go. And so I was able to start, instead of saving the money, just chunking it all on my car debt. And I ended up refinancing it because it was at 18% interest when I bought it. So yeah. And then I ended up getting it down to like 7%, which is still, you know, I was 18, 19 at the time. So that was still pretty uh, rough, but I ended up chunking it down, chunking it down, chunking it down and ended up paying it off. And so that's when I really felt like, okay, I'm in a much, much better predicament now than I was uh, when I bought the car. Oh, yeah. And and, I mean, you can see it, too. At that point, you've got the car, you've got no payment, you've got some money in savings. There's that visual or even just mental cue that you are doing better than you are just a year or two, three years ago. Yeah. And um Oh, wow. I'm, I was going to say something. I got a complete brain fart just now. I'm sorry. All good. Yeah, it, it happens. Um, oh, oh, I, I do remember. It's just a tip for your listeners. Uh, what I did, which I'm, I'm really glad I did it, was I ended up uh, paying off the car. But what I did was I left a, like a $7 balance on it because the loan was for six years. Mm-hmm. And so I had paid it off in two years. So if I would have paid the, the loan off at that time, then I would have, you know, it, it would have dropped my credit score. Um, 
it would have hurt me. And so I decided I'm just going to leave $7 on the loan. I'll pay interest on, I'll pay 7% on $7. Right. right. And I'll, I'll pay it. Uh, and I just won't pay it for the next four years. And I ended up doing that. And, and it, it's just a tip for you guys. If you guys are going to pay off your car loan or anything like that, and you have this long loan term, leave a dollar on there, leave $2 on there. That way, every single month it's reporting to the credit bureaus. It's reporting on-time payments and it's going to positively impact you. So. And actually, you know, that's a really good point that I don't think we've had anyone bring up on the show before. And I don't think I'd even talk about much in my teachings, you know, that, positive credit history, building your credit is huge. Yeah. And even something as simple as, you know, paying off your car, quote unquote, and having that dollar. I mean, that positive payment history, it snowballs fast. Yeah. And and it's not like I would tell you, go get a car payment in order to build your credit. But it's just like for those people who already have the car and they already are planning on paying it off. It's just a tip for them, right? So don't go get a car. Just be like, James said I should pay off the car and leave the balance. Like, no, no, no. Don't go get the car loan at all. But if you already did, then you can turn it into a positive. So. And, you know, I guess, you know, moving into today, relating that into your financial coaching, you know, the steps, of course, you took to get your money right when you finance the car, are those still kind of the same steps process that you walk clients through? or has this been refined over the years? Yeah. So I'll say that the way it, 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 it's been refined, but it's the premise is still the same. Right. So after I got in such a much better financial position, um, my wife came to me one day and she's like, okay, you know, you're saving all this money. It's nice. What are you saving for? And I didn't have an answer. I was just like, I'm just saving. And at this point I've got like, you know, 20,000, like $20,000 or so in a savings account. And I have no idea what I'm saving for. That's when I learned how to invest and, and do all these things. And that's what I start asking clients. I'm like, okay, like, first of all, before we do anything, what do you want out of life? Right. Personal finance is personal. So if I don't first understand what you want out of life, then I can't help you create a plan in order to get there. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. That's a really, really good point. I know a lot of people walk into coaching or even, you know, the idea of, I just, I want to save money. I want to be a millionaire, but why? But what, it, what is, what does the money mean? Because if you're just saving for the money, then I mean, you're not really getting anywhere. You're not, you know, helping your lifestyle or expanding or, you know, buying freedom even. Yeah. And so it's like, as soon as you get that, why everything else kind of falls into into it falls into place once that base is set. And so when it comes to financial coaching today, it's always a you have to figure out what do you want out of life, right? A lot of people really enjoy the things they do. So not not everyone wants to just quit and never work again. You know, like if you ask me, do I never want to work again? I'm going to tell you no, because I am, I love podcasting. I love coaching people financially. I love changing people's lives and changing people's perspectives. Therefore, it, I don't mind working. Like I get so much joy and so much fulfillment out of it. Right. And so that's the first thing when it comes to any coaching is uh, especially financial coaching is figure out that why. And then you can create a plan to fit that. 
so to go back and answer your question, like what are the steps in the processes? It's kind of the same steps I took, right? So the first thing I suggest everyone, it's it it's it's kind of cookie cutter up to a certain point, right? I think everyone should strive to have a thousand dollars in their savings account per person in their household. Why? Because your tire on your car is gonna blow out. It's gonna happen, whether it's today, whether it's next year, it's gonna happen. Your 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 child might break their leg, right? If you're running to like a payday lender or a credit card company in order to cover these things, they're not your friends, right? So you want to be your own bank when it when you start out. So I always start out with how can we save a thousand dollars per person in your household? So if it's you, your wife, and two kids, that's four thousand dollars. Okay. After that, that's number one, and and that's priority just to set the foundation. That's when I go into now we need to start analyzing these debts and getting them paid off. Right. What's the interest rate? What kind of debt is it? Uh, What is your opinion on the debt? You know, what's your what is your current plan for the debt? Because if you tell me like, hey, James, I've been working nine years in this company and next year my student loans are going to be forgiven. I'm not going to be like, well, you need to pay off all your student loans this year. Right. That wouldn't make sense. You have to. Yeah. Like I'm going to say, okay, like I hope it works, but we're going to try it. We're going to go with it. And if it doesn't, then we'll pivot. And so getting that emergency fund, uh, the starter emergency fund, and then paying off your high interest debts. I say anything over 4%. And that's just me personally. Um, anything over 4% because you're getting anywhere between seven and 8% in the stock market. And then I focus on the actual emergency fund, which is three to six months of expenses, depending on your career. You know, I love that point. They thousand dollars per person. Cause like you said, life happens and it, it happens fast. I mean, I think not too long ago, I had to get some, my car just kind of broke down, bam, $1,400 to fix it out, out of nowhere. I mean, you can't, you put that on a credit card and well, I don't want to say you're screwed, but you're kind of screwed. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, when you have the emergency fund, your car breaking down is like a, oh, oh crap, not a, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Like, it, it's not a panic. It's just like a, man, dang it, not again. It's an inconvenience. And when you turn an inconvenience, when you turn a, a catastrophe to a simple inconvenience, it brings so much peace to your life. In my opinion, I'm gonna call that the quote for the episode. Uh, when you turn you know, a catastrophe into an inconvenience, that's peace. I, I like that. I like that mentality. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, that's definitely going in the market. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, continuing on, you know, what you teach clients, you know, what, let's talk budgeting straight up. I think we're both in full agreement that that is step one take stock of what you have. I mean, do you, I, Looking at the cookie cutter templates, I spoke with a financial advisor two, three weeks ago on the show, I think. Um, and he talked a lot about the 50, 30, 20 budget as just a simple baseline. Is there a baseline you operate off of, like as the cookie cutter strategy, or is it person by person? So I have I have some general rules when it comes to budgeting, um, but I don't have a cookie cutter because everyone... Uh, so here's the philosophy before we even hit the budget, right? If you don't enjoy the budget, 
you're not going to do it for an extended amount of time. If every single time you sit down and budget, you feel like you're cutting off an arm and giving away a sandal and, you know, you're sacrificing every single thing and you're not getting any joy back out of it. I, I don't, I wouldn't personally do that for very long. So I have no reason to believe that others will do it. Right. So you have to agree with your budget. Otherwise it, it causes conflict. Um, and there is no cookie cutter. I do have like some specific rules that in a perfect world, I would suggest people to do, but I also understand that personal finance is personal. And so everyone won't be able to follow these golden rules. For example, one of my rules for my personal life, uh, I don't follow, I, I follow it, but I follow it to like an extreme is I categorize the budget into three separate categories, right? You have your necessities, you have your wants, and then you have your luxuries. Necessities are things like the four walls, right? You need a roof over your head. You need food in your stomach. You need transportation to get to and from work. And you need utilities. You need your electric. You need your water and all those things. Those are absolutely necessities. Those have got to be taken care of. Then you have your wants. Your wants are things that are not absolutely survival based, but life kind of sucks without them. So what are these things, right? These these are things like your cell phone. Like, Joseph, if you broke your phone today, it would suck, right? But you wouldn't be like absolutely panicking, like, oh, my God, the world is on fire. Like, you just be like, dang it, it sucks. Same thing with things like Wi-Fi, if your Wi-Fi just ended up going out one day, it's not like call the call nine one one. Like it's an emergency. It's 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 nothing like a need. Like if if the how if the roof on your house blows off, that's like a need, right? Or if your your family is starving, that's a need. So these are these are examples of wants. Your a, a cell phone or a uh, internet at your home, unless of course you need it for work and stuff, but um, it's a wide variety of things. And then the luxuries is everything else, right? And when it comes to eating out is a luxury. Um, there, there are just so many different things, uh, subscriptions like cable and things like that. Those are luxuries. And so one of the general rules that I like to follow, which is, it really shocks people's systems, but I really think in order to build generational wealth is if you're not investing this more than you are spending on luxuries, then you're doing it wrong. So if you're spending, let's just total all your luxuries to $500 a month. If you're not investing at least that, then I think you have your priorities backwards. No, and I agree with that 100%. It's, I, I like your you know, three categories there and splitting up between you know, what is a want and what is a luxury. Because I know a lot of people will you know, put, say, like you said, cable and Wi-Fi in the same want category. But no, there really is a tier difference between the two. What sucks and you know, what is quality of life we could really live without? Not much of a change. Yeah, and it's like people, that's why I love to say like people say you're car is a luck is a your car is a necessity like yes transportation in itself is a is a necessity but you can do the same job with a 1500 hundred dollar car than you can with a thirty thousand dollar car 
And so at what point does transportation become a luxury, right? It's when you're driving a car you can't afford. So in this, I mean, it goes for everything. It goes for if you're going on vacations, right? Like if you're going to spend $3,000 on a vacation, but you won't put $3,000 in a Roth IRA, I think your priorities are messed up. And, and, and here's the thing, like you can do that. That's fine. But just know uh, the sacrifice that you're giving up. A lot of people don't understand the, the future value of their money, right? If you spend a dollar today, instead of investing it, that, that $1 would have been $20 at the time of retirement. So that $3,000 vacation, if you invested it, it would have turned into 60000 or $600,000 at retirement or however the math goes out. Oh, you know, you're definitely 100% right on that math. And, you know, it's also kind of like, you know, still you have the luxuries. You don't need to deprave yourself to build wealth. You've just got to moderate, be moderate about it and, you know, invest more than you spend, like you said. And, you know, just out of curiosity, is there a certain, you know, you said you have a rule of thumb for investing. Is there like a percentage of income you see as a minimum, 10, 20, 30, 40, or are we just trying to get that as high as possible? I mean, in, in a in a perfect world, I'd want that as high as possible. But again, I understand like it's uh, the reality I want and the reality that we live in are two different things, right? So I really love Dave Ramsey's approach of 15% going into retirement. I think that is an amazing baseline and that can almost guarantee anyone will become a millionaire at the time of retirement, right? And so that's what I want for everyone. So if we can get that, you know, um, I, that's what I want, right? Some people, 15% seems impossible, right? So let's break it down even further. Because I, to answer your question in the most direct way possible, it's however deep you're willing to sacrifice, I'm happy with. And so, but you just have to understand, like you can cut deeper, but if you're choosing other things over that to make your life a happier life, I, I have no right to tell you not to. And so the order of operation I would go is, of course, if you're employed and your employer has an employee match, I would do up to that. So if you put in 5%, they put in 5%. I think that's an amazing golden first step for anyone to do. And I think it's the most realistic because the money never comes into your pocket. Next, I would prioritize, depending on your income, of course, a Roth IRA, trying to get that up as high as, you know, possibly. After that, if, if you do both of those, I have no doubts in my mind you'll become a millionaire and you can live the rest of your life as 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 you want to, right? But I want to create generational wealth, meaning I want multi-millions that I can pass down to my children's children's children. So I have to do a little bit more than that. So if you want that for your family, then you have to do a little bit more. But if you just want enough to retire comfortably, I think getting the match and maxing out a Roth, I think it'll get you there as long as the world doesn't fall apart. I like that. I didn't, as long as the world doesn't fall apart, <laughs> I'll give you that one. Yeah, it's it's very client-based. And that's usually the first thing I say too, is I mean, that match money is free money. Yeah, at least, at least get the free money. It's a benefit your employer is giving you. I mean, you have to take them up on it to say the least. Yeah. And I mean, I did a on episode two of my podcast, you know, I like to play around with a compound interest calculator and I'm, I try to emphasize the point that humans are not meant, uh, we're not trained to think 
uh, exponential growth, right? Mm-hmm. We're trained to think linear. And so when you're saving money, you know, that is linear growth. If I put in a hundred and I already have a hundred, that's 200, right? We're not, we're not built to understand the power of compounding interest. That's why um, I think it was Albert Einstein said, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world because it's something that we still cannot grasp without training. And so I always, I always, always, always recommend people go on to like a calculator.net and and go to a compound interest calculator and just start playing with it. Right. Like just start putting in random numbers and just see that put in $1 and see what it grows to over 30 years. Put in, if I, I did this thing where if you invest $1 a day, over the 30 year span that you average a 10% return, it'll end up $1,000. Less than uh, about 30,000 of that is actual money you put in. The other 90 is growth. And our, our brain isn't mentally prepared to understand that concept. Therefore, that's why I always suggest go in there. If you can only invest $30 a week, put it in, see what it gets you. And then look at the alternatives. Let's say you go and get a coffee seven days a week. It ends up being $50. Let's say you cut that in half and you only get it every other day and you sit and you invest that $25 extra. What will that turn to at the time of retirement? Can you cut that deep? And, and a lot of people will. I love having another uh, finance nerd on the podcast with me. Cause I mean, like, all times I keep that thing on me. Uh, (laughs) Always. I keep that thing on me. Yes, sir. (laughs) You know, off of investing uh, into debt, I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. You know, you talked about anything over 4% is a bad debt. Is that like a strict rule of thumb with like, you know, a 5% mortgage? Is that bad debt? I'm I'm sorry. I might've misspoken earlier. Right. So I didn't, um, I don't, I don't really classify good debt and bad debt based on the interest rate. I classify it by what it's doing for you, right? Because like, I am a hundred percent. Okay. If you have a debt that you take out for, let's just say it 30%, let's just something crazy. And the return on it after you factor in risk is 80%. I'm a hundred percent fine with that debt. I'm I'm 100% fine with it because it's making you money. It's giving you a return. Um, The debts I'm not okay with, the the bad debts, I would say, are the debts that are taken away from you, right? Things like credit cards. Like, yes, you might have gotten a TV out of it, but what is that TV costing you? Or personal loans, you know what I mean? Like, what what is that debt costing you? So uh, the... The dirty rule I I came up with around debt is like, if the debt is not increasing your income, or if the debt doesn't produce income, it's bad debt. There are exceptions to that rule, of course, like those dirty, dirty student loans, right? Student loans can be the absolute blessing or they can be an absolute curse, right? Depending on how you use them. So if if you're going into debt, let's just say, Let's go to the extreme, right? Because if, if the rule works in the extreme, it'll work in the little. In the little, let's say a doctor is going into medical school, and they know once they get out, they're going to make two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
If they have to invest $100,000 in order to get that $250 a year, that's a good investment to me personally. Would I do it? Probably not because I don't want to work that long, but that's, but it's still okay with me. If we take that same circumstance and you're going a million dollars into debt to get $250, dollars a year, I'm definitely looking at that, that much, much different. And so there's, there's a wide spectrum on what, um, when a debt, when a good debt can turn into a bad debt. Uh, other examples of good debt, I would say, are things like mortgages, right? If you're getting a mortgage on a rental property and that property is producing income, it's increasing your income, but it's also giving you things like uh, tax advantages. It's giving you appreciation. It's giving you principal pay down. And so all of these returns compounded especially with us being in such a low interest rate um, realm. I mean, they're, they're going up now, but it's uh, it can be extremely rewarding. And so, yeah, I, I think there is a line between good debts and bad debts. As long as it's increasing your income or producing income, it can be a good debt. Yeah. I really like that line that you've drawn there. You know, there's no set good debt or bad debt. There's no, exact interest rate or APR. It's, you know, what are you getting out of it? And I think that's a really good line to draw because I mean, at the end of the day, every debt can be good and every debt can be bad. It just depends on how you're utilizing the leverage. Yeah. And another thing that I don't think many people um, take into account is they don't, they account in all of the mathematics of the equation and they leave out the risk. And so I always tell people, if you're not calculating, because it's very easy to determine whether a a debt is good debts and bad debts. Like, for example, let's go back to the student loans, right? Let's just say you go to school to become an MMA fighter, right? Like you don't, but let's just say, let's say you pay a hundred thousand and you're paying, you're making $300,000 a year, right? Would you compare an MMA fighter to a doctor? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because the risk of an MMA fighter is so much higher than a doctor. Like you're you're constantly getting hurt or you're putting your body through all these interesting. You don't know if your career is going to last one year or if it's going to last five years or 20 years. At least for a doctor, it's a the, the risk is much lower. And that goes for everything. Right. When you're buying a property, um, if you're buying it in a questionable area, the risk is higher than if you're buying it in a B-class, C-class area. Um, So you have to factor that in when you're coming up to, okay, will this debt be good debt or bad debt? Because you can make a good debt into a bad debt if you don't um, incorporate risk into the equation. And also, you know, a really good point, you know, it's personal finance and everything is, you know, it's personal. Sometimes the math works, but the math can only account for so much, you know, moving into, you know, our more like, you know, closing questions in the interview. Um, so in your opinion, you know, what is the biggest thing anyone can start doing today to improve their financial situation? Oh, that's easy. Uh, get on a budget, right? Like you don't, you can't invest if you don't know how much money is coming in. And if you don't know how much money is going out, you can't, you shouldn't, you should not be investing if you don't at least understand your own personal balance sheet, right? That That's always the biggest first step because once you get control of your finances, once you get control of how much is going out and how much is coming in, now 
you can use that excess income to do whatever you want to do. Definitely a great first step and a great point. I mean, I think I've said like four times now, you know, take stock of what you have before you can do something with it. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And you know, last question on here, you know, what does wealthy mean for you? What, what is wealth? What are we all pursuing here? You know, man, wealth. So being wealthy has so many different definitions that I've come to learn over the past years. It wealth is really like, what do you value? Do you value materialistic things? Do you value your time more? Do you value your own, your alone time or do you value family time? And so wealthy to me means being filled with what you value. So me personally, what, what wealth means for me is having more time um, for myself and my family. So I don't have children right now. And so I am busting my butt day in and day out because when I do have children, I don't want to be that dad who can't make it to the baseball game or that can't watch his daughter at least once a week during cheer practice or, you know, take my children to all of these different places to experience so many different things around the world. I want to be involved because I, I missed out on that in, in, in my own childhood. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of looking at, I'm going to loosely call them mistakes, but I'm, I'm looking at other people's situation and trying my best to not replicate that. And so being able to be that active father that I don't have to tell my children, like, look, I'm sorry, but I have to work in order to get the bills paid and all these things. And so that's once I reach that point, that's when I'm wealthy, when I have the option to do whatever I need to do for my family. And definitely a great why there and getting you through, um, you know, definitely, you know, be the change, make the change you want to see in the world. And you're doing that, you know, you're changing you know, your family tree, you're changing, you're creating generational wealth. You're making those changes that you want to see for future generations instead of, you know, just hoping that it works out. And I love that mentality. So just moving on to our last couple of closing questions of the interview. So where can we find you online? Yeah, man. So I've got my own podcast, Gen Z Money, where I mainly target the younger generation, right? Because everybody in the older generation, they always tell you, like, I wish I started sooner. I wish I started sooner. And so, like, I am sooner. Like, we are sooner. Therefore, that's who I'm targeting. And that that's what I do, man. I bring people on the podcast every single week to talk about their stories and their experiences and, and put out that knowledge to the world and put out the information that we're not taught in school when it comes to financial literacy. And you can find Gen Z money on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. So you can find us anywhere there. If you want to reach me personally, um, you can look up Gen Z money on Instagram and Twitter. It's just at Gen Z money on both. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm there. I'm always willing to have a conversation. Even if we don't agree, I'm always willing to have the conversation because at the end of the day, you might change my mind. Right. And I might be able to help you or you might even be able to provide me value in some way. So I can be reached on any of those. And I'll make sure to link every single one of those in the show notes down below for this episode. And uh, final question of the day, what's next for James Bowman? Yeah, man, um, I'm a big, big, big real estate guy. And so we are on the cusp of just getting our 
down payment down, uh, down payment and closing costs for our third rental. So I assume within the next couple months, I'll be into uh, the market looking a little bit closer and securing my third rental, hopefully, man. And, and continuing from there because what I'm chasing is passive income, right? I need to replace that W-2 income that I have. And so the real estate's the way I found it. And I do a little bit of the market, but uh, I use the market as retirement and I'm using real estate as my today money, my bridge to retirement. I love that, you know, passive income, of course, it's uh, one of the biggest catalysts to wealth, no doubt about it. And pre-congratulations already on the third rental. <laughs> We're speaking into existence, Amen. man. Speaking into existence. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Absolutely, man. I really enjoyed being here. And uh, let me know if you want me to come back anytime, man. I'm always open for the conversation. Oh, yeah. We'd definitely love to have you back on. Get another one of these talks again sometime. Later, man. <laughs>